0: Thank you for joining us once again for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and for this episode of the show, we are going to be talking about the very first licensed Star Wars game. I am, of course, referring to that excellent side-scrolling shooter, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, by Parker Brothers for the Atari 2600. The reason for choosing this Atari 2600 game as the subject for the show is because it is one of my favorites. Plus the fact, just a couple of weeks back, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. I will have to admit that in my mind, I remembered this coming out after the Atari Star Wars arcade game. But the truth of the matter is, Parker Brothers beat that classic arcade title to the punch by one year. I was talking to Earl Green before recording this episode, and he pointed out an interesting fact. With Parker Brothers securing the licensing agreement with Lucasfilm, beating out Atari developing and producing video games based on Star Wars means that Atari couldn't even port its own arcade game to the 2600 and other systems. Although, to be fair, I think Parker Brothers did a pretty good job of developing some memorable Star Wars titles. I mean, it may have indeed started with The Empire Strikes Back, but you also had Star Wars Jedi Arena, the arcade game port, as well as Star Wars Return of the Jedi Death Star Battle, all released in 1983, plus the never officially released Star Wars Ewok Adventure. I think it's fair to say that most fans feel that the Empire Strikes Back was the best of the bunch, though. I was lucky enough to get the Empire Strikes Back cartridge for the holidays of 1982. Parker Brothers Games had heavier cardboard stock in regards to their game boxes. In fact, it always reminded me of the same material used with their board game boxes. Now, say where, with the likes of Atari-produced games, you pulled off the top of the box, the flap that sealed it. With Parker Brothers games, after removing the plastic, you slipped the top of the box off and you would find the game held in a cardboard sleeve, with the instructions below it. No need to destroy the packaging to get to the game itself. I bring this up because, even though the game was wrapped, I knew it was a Parker Brothers title from the heavier box. But, what could it be? Maybe it was that Spider-Man game I was begging for. Perhaps it was even Frogger. As soon as I ripped that paper off, I freaked out because staring back at me was the menacing image of an AT-AT. Possibly the greatest vehicle ever developed by the Empire. Friends, I was so excited that I immediately began turning on the TV and pulling out the VCS and a controller to play it. My grandmother literally had to raise her voice to get me to stop and actually keep opening my other gifts. I've mentioned in the past that while growing up, my father didn't have much money, being a single parent. Birthdays and the holidays always felt like the times where I would kind of get more than my fair share. I know now, a lot of that had to do with my grandmother. Anyway, that holiday, I also received Howard Scott Warshaw's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark. In addition to Pac-Man and Demon Attack, too. After the unwrapping frenzy had subsided and my family was able to get all that shredded wrapping paper stuff into trash bags, I still had to wait to play The Empire Strikes Back until we had eaten breakfast. But, while we were enjoying breakfast together, I was reading the manual for the game cover to cover. And as soon as I was excused, and I put that game cartridge into the 2600, flipping on the power switch, while it might sound silly, this is true. I was hooked when I heard that familiar tune coming from the television set's speakers. Now, Parker Brothers obviously was best known for designing and producing board games. The company itself was basically founded by George S. Parker in 1883, when, at the age of 16, he created a game called Banking. It was his brother Charles that talked George into attempting to manufacture and sell the game. Unable to raise the finances, he managed to scrounge up $40 and publish the game himself, after forming the George S. Parker Company. Parker produced 500 sets of banking, and I've read online that he sold all but 12 copies of the game and earned $100 for his efforts. In 1883, that would have been the equivalent of $2,538.50. Let that sink in for a second. A 16-year-old boy made that kind of money thanks to the game he produced. Five years later, he asked his brother Charles to join the company, renamed Parker Brothers. And then, after 10 more years, they asked their other brother, Edward, to join them. It was in the 70s when Parker Brothers began to develop electronic games, both handheld devices and board games such as Merlin, Stop Thief, Codename Sector, and Split Second, to name a few. Which is, of course, why the company saw the wisdom of throwing their hat into the ring for producing home video games. Many of them were ports of popular titles like Frogger, Reactor, Cubert and Popeye, but they naturally had original games too, such as GI Joe Cobra Strike, Strawberry Shortcake Musical Matchups and James Bond 007. As you can see, they had no problem producing games on popular toy and film franchises. Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back was programmed by Rex E. Bradford and designed by Sam Kelman. However, judging from a December 25th, 2016 interview with Darren Jones of Retro Gamer, I feel that perhaps Sam and Rex both had a hand in the designing of the game. Rex was a graduate of the University of Massachusetts, where he learned programming. Shortly after graduating, he saw a job offer with Parker Brothers in the pages of The Boston Globe. He was apparently hired on the spot, but to work on electronic games, in particular an electronic version of Monopoly. But he found himself being moved to the video game division, with his first task being to create a disassembler for Atari cartridges that had already been produced. The heads of the division, Mark Lesser and Jim McGinnis, were attempting to discover how the Atari 2600 was programmed. It was Parker Brothers employee, Sam Kelman who was put in charge of designing the Empire Strikes Back game. Kelman. I really hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. I'm assuming it's not pronounced Kajelman. I think the J is silent. Had been working with Parker Brothers for a little while, designing such board games as 1975's Lost Gold. And he eventually worked on Clue 2, a VCR mystery game in 1988, along with Isabel Garrett. From what I've read in that article, the marketing team wisely decided to base this first Star Wars video game on one of the most exciting moments from the 1980 film. In addition, as Sam admits in that Retro Gamer interview, the popularity, the popularity of Defender had a bit to do with the design choices of the game. The overall goal of the design, though, was to let players feel like they were zooming over the icy surface of Hoth in snowspeeders, attempting to halt the massive AT-ATs that were marching ever onwards towards the Rebel Shield generator to blow it up. I think it's fair to say that they succeeded in that goal. Apparently, once the design was underway, though, the marketing team would keep coming back asking for changes to the game, like wanting Rex to program a tow cable feature to bring the walkers down, which, with the limits of the cartridge, were impossible at that time. In that Retro Gamer interview, Rex states, quote, Empire was not only my first video game, it was also my first assembly language program. It was a baptism of fire. Every morning, I printed out the program. It wasn't that long, really. And every evening, I printed out another copy to take home and pour over at night. It took about five months, start to finish. And I don't think I did much of anything else during those months but work on that game. Sam and I worked closely together in the same building, and he was playing iterations of the game regularly. As well as being in charge of the game design, he did the graphics for the walkers and perhaps the Snowspeeders as well. Though the smaller sprites were so simple, they were often done by programmers. The basic scene of Snowspeeder vs. Walker was decided before I got on the project, but the details of the game were definitely worked out on the fly. For example, while the vulnerable sweet spot on the walkers was part of the design early on, the idea of it launching a smart bomb that chases you came up much later. End quote. I will, of course, include a link to that interview from Retro Gamer on the Pop Culture Retrorama post for this podcast. It's an amazing read, and I am very happy that the hard work from these two from the early days of home console games has been documented and saved. For what it's worth... Rexy Bradford would go on to work on Star Wars Jedi Arena, as well as the unreleased 1983 Activision title Kabobber, although it would finally see release in the Activision Anthology Collection. Rex would work on the Apple II port for Pitfall II Lost Caverns, and eventually he would have a hand in working on the first System Shock. Sam Kelman, besides having some input into the 1993 X-Men Sega Genesis game, owns his own company now, a design firm. Okay, The Empire Strikes Back tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns with piloting their snowspeeders by way of the joystick, allowing the snowspeeder to fly up and down as well as left and right. Continuously pushing of the joystick to the left or right will allow the player to speed up their snowspeeder in that direction. Slowing it down to target one of the AT-ATs is done by pressing in the opposite direction. If you reach the far end of the left-hand side of the screen, you will warp around and re-emerge on the far right-hand side. Useful if you're having too much fun with the parallax scrolling effect of the Hoth background. And you need to get back to the lead walker. If you're playing just the basic game, you can fly through the AT-ATs without harm. However, if you're using the solid walker's variation, your snowspeeder will be destroyed when making contact with the body of the walker. Although, it will damage the AT-AT significantly in the process. Even with the solid walker's variation enabled, you can fly through the AT-AT's legs without harm. And in all honesty, you can really duck and dive, swarming over and under the walkers, blasting away at them with what the manual calls missiles by pressing the fire button. Which I suppose for the game works, as we all know that the armor on the AT-ATs is too strong for blasters, right? A player will not be able to beat the Empire Strikes Back game. Eventually, you will lose the game, whether that be from losing all of your snow speeders or a walker reaching the far right side of the screen, signaling the destruction of the rebel's power generator. Not sure why it wasn't called the Shield Generator like in the movie. In fact, the ability to not actually win the game was something that none other than Harlan Ellison wrote about in Video Review Magazine. Not only calling it, quote, the latest icon of the imbecile industry, in quote. Among other things, he said that it, quote, bored his... But off. Quote. I cleaned up what he said a bit, actually. When the game begins, the player will have five snow speeders to use to take out five AT-ATs. It takes 48 missile hits from the player to defeat a walker. You can't rest though, because moments after destroying one of the five walkers, a new one will emerge from the left-hand side of the screen. To make matters a little easier, on keeping an eye on how many at 80s you must contend with, as well as how close the lead walker is to the end of the right-hand side of the screen, there is a radar band at the bottom of the screen, showing not only your position, which is represented as a bracket, but the walkers, which are just black squares. After eight hits, an AT-AT will change color, showing that you are damaging it. Starting off with black, it then becomes gray, blue, purple red, and then yellow before it explodes in a satisfying multicolored flash of light. In fact, with the color changes representing damage to the AT-AT you're assaulting, it has the added bonus of slowing the walker down. Which is why it's a good strategy to weaken the lead walker to the point of almost destroying it, and then fly off and take care of the other AT-ATs. Granted, you still have to keep an eye on that radar band to be ready to fly back and take care of the lead walker before it reaches the far right side of the screen. In all honesty, the game does give you a warning if that is about to take place. If you are too slow to react, however, you will naturally lose the game. I suppose it should go without saying that the walkers aren't defenseless. As they relentlessly stomp across the surface of Hoth towards the Rebel Power Generator, they will launch their own missiles towards the player's snowspeeders. And as the game progresses, with each new AT-AT, it moves and shoots a little faster. And I am sad to say that its aim improves too. Now you might luck out and actually shoot a missile that is coming at you. This results in the Imperial missile exploding in the air. Players have to be careful, by the way. That explosion can still damage your snowspeeder if you make contact with it. There is one other variation to talk about, and it has to do with the defense the AT-ATs can use against you. That is, the smart bomb. Hey, told you that Defender was an inspiration for this game. In this version of the game, when the bomb hatch opens, more on that in just a second, it might release a smart bomb against the player. These travel in a looping pattern and will come after your Snowspeeder. You can try to blast them or attempt to lose it by soaring away from the deadly device until it disappears from the screen. Now, if that smart bomb manages to strike your Snowspeeder, if you've already suffered a hit from a Walker missile, you will most definitely be blown out of the sky. The Snowspeeder is purple-hued, and if you have been struck by an Imperial missile correction, when you are struck by enemy fire, the Snowspeeder becomes orange-colored. In addition, there is a neat design that when your snowspeeder is struck by an enemy missile, it kind of blasts you backwards a little ways across the screen. You can possibly take up to five hits before you are destroyed, but I've been shot down in as little as two hits. However, you can fly down and land in what the manual calls open valleys, basically the flat spaces of ground. There are hills, though, so if you're moving at high speeds, you might have to skim just a bit before coming in for a landing. A second later will result in your snowspeeder being repaired. The Imperial Walkers will attempt to shoot at you while you have landed, so you have to time your ascension to get back into the fight carefully. Also, you will only get two repairs per Snowspeeder, although you can earn an additional two repairs if you survive long enough to be affected by the Force. Now, those bomb hatches are tiny flashing squares that appear now and again on the walker's body. Another design flaw the Empire failed to recognize, like with the Death Star. Landing a shot on one of them will instantly vaporize an AT-AT, They will randomly appear either on the rear section of the walker, which, in my opinion, is the easiest to hit. You have to be quick, though. They only appear for a few seconds. They can also show up just behind and below the head of the walker. The thing to keep in mind is the head of the AT-AT will attempt to track you while you're flying about, raising and lowering, firing off missiles. A player must use this to their advantage if they want to be able to hit those specific areas above and below the AT-AT's head. You see why I said, though, it was easier to attack the bomb hatch from the back of the walker. Keep in mind, the AT-AT is still able to shoot at you even if it's not facing you. I mentioned being affected by the force just a moment ago. This occurs if the player is able to stay alive for two minutes. The Star Wars theme kicks in, and your snowspeeder begins to flash multiple colors. Which means now, for 20 seconds, you become invincible. And it's the perfect time to rush in and start blasting an AT-AT up close and personal. While the scoring in The Empire Strikes Back was something I was never truly occupied with, the fact of the matter is you earn one point for every missile that hits a walker. You get 10 points for blasting an Imperial Missile out of the sky, 25 points for crashing your Snowspeeder into an AT-AT. This is, of course, if you're using the Solid Walkers variation, 50 points for actually destroying a walker, and 100 points each for hitting that bomb hatch or managing to shoot down a smart bomb. You will earn yourself a new Snowspeeder for every 2,000 points you rack up.
1: And now, these messages... This is the new Frogger home video game. Ribbit, it's just like the arcade game. You have to hop, Frogger, past these cars and trucks. Ha, missed, and back home to his lily pad. The new Frogger home video game. Bring it back to your
0: pad. Also from Parker,
2: Star Wars. You saw Luke
0: Skywalker battle the Imperial Walkers. Now bring the battle home. Play The Empire Strikes Back, where the challenge never ends. The Empire Strikes Back. Ribbit. And Frogger video games. Only from Parker.
1: Empire Strikes Back, a great movie, now a great video game, a movie which challenged your imagination, now a video game where the challenge never ends. You saw Luke Skywalker battle the Imperial Walkers, now bring the battle home. The Force was with Luke Skywalker, will it be with you? Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back video game, for your Atari and Sears video game systems from
0: Parker Brothers, No one's to beat. Parker Brothers managed to port The Empire Strikes Back to only one other system. In fact, here to talk a little bit more about that and other games using the Battle of Hoth scenario is my fellow pop culture Rama contributor and head of thelogbook.com, Earl Green.
1: We have transported. I still recall the first time I ever set eyes on Parker Brothers The Empire Strikes Back for the Atari 2600 because I was over at my sister's house and my nephew had a copy of the game and I thought it was just one of the coolest things I had ever seen. Wow, you could finally play a Star Wars game at home because you have to keep in mind this game was out before the Star Wars arcade game that, you know, really set the bar for a Star Wars gaming experience. The Empire Strikes Back was really- released officially for the Atari 2600 and the Intellivision. Now, a version for the Odyssey 2, or the video pack, as it was called in Europe, has been shown off by some collectors in South America. However, I am uncertain if this is actually a prototype that Parker Brothers made, or if this is a fan-made game. I really have no further information on the game. Also of interest, on the Apple II is a fan-made game called The Battle of Hoth which increases the number of walkers on the screen because there are several rows of walkers stacked vertically that your snowspeeder has to navigate. And in a way, it's almost like it's almost like Root Beer Tapper, the way that game works, The Battle of Hoth, in that you're trying to repel the walkers. And even if you destroy one, a new one will appear, so they're kind of like the bar patrons. In Root Beer Tapper, or Tapper, or you know, Blue Milk Tapper. Yeah, think of it as Blue Milk Tapper. So that's another game using a similar mechanic, but is not actually a port of the Parker Brothers game.
0: For what it's worth, we do have the Empire Strikes Back Atari 2600 cartridge at the arcade. We also have the 1985 The Empire Strikes Back arcade game by Atari, but that's a story for another podcast. Shea has actually purchased two of the Empire Strikes Back cartridges. As I've shared before on Instagram and on the Diary Facebook page, there are times when children and even adults aren't paying attention where their feet are when passing by the Atari couch. Since Shea designed that area to be something like you would have experienced back in the 80s, that meant the 2600 was bolted into the floor. While the 2600 for nearly eight years wasn't going anywhere, if someone's foot accidentally kicked it, the cartridges aren't quite as tough. And honestly, it brings you down a little bit to be walking the floor, and you see pieces of the cartridge scattered all across the arcade. Speaking of the arcade, we have Gary Burton back with us this week with a brand new segment, this time talking about another Atari arcade game.
2: Take it away, Gary. Hello, everyone. Gary here, the head game tech at Arcadia Retrocade, filling you in on some of the recent work I've been up to lately. The arcade is still closed, but that hasn't kept us from continuing to test or repair games to make them playable once we swing open our doors again. One such troublemaker has been Atari's Battlezone from 1980. This vector graphic arcade game has been a thorn in my side since I started helping the owner at Arcadia more than a year ago. While we could get the monitor working correctly, the game would barely play for a few minutes with lots of errors on the screen and then just stop altogether. I'd like to be able to tell you that after lots of diagnostic work and even more trial and error, the game is now working fine in our current lineup. That would only be half true. After much diagnostic work I threw in the towel and contacted a fellow game tech near Springfield, Missouri named Eugene Mosh. He is an expert at bringing dead Atari games back to life, and he was able to send back our three circuit boards in less than a week. Part of being a responsible tech is knowing when to seek help above your experience. I received the bulk of my electronic repair background from serving in the US Army back in the late 1980s and working as an Armament Repair Specialist and Missile Command Repairer on AH-1 Cobra Helicopters, and serving as Manager of the Lydans Castle Arcade in Fort Smith, Arkansas for a while. While that training has served me well, the battle zone Board Repair required an experience level well above mine. Our choices were, 1, wait for me to gain that experience and hope for the best, 2, let the game just stay non-functional, or 3, Seek out someone who could repair these circuit boards blindfolded and have them back to us as soon as possible. Well, we chose that last option, and the results have been amazing. Not only did Mr. Mosh do a fantastic job at making our Battlezone run like it did 40 years ago, he had a few modifications that went above and beyond for us. The high scores are now saved after the power is turned off, and the game will now play its attract mode sounds while in free play mode. Well worth the extra effort on Mr. Mosh's part. Join me back next time, and let's see if we can discuss something that I can actually take credit for. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye.
0: Friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I want you to know that I really do appreciate your support and hope that you're enjoying this second season of the podcast. I know I am no expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games, and I enjoy talking about them. We did receive some wonderful fan mail from the Elevator Action episode, by the way. Judging from the comments, most of you all want us, in fact, to do an episode on the Starcade TV series. I'll try to do that in the near future. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes. I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library, a result of switching from the Retroist site to the Pop Culture Retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook, or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. Earl Green is a frequent contributor to the pop culture RetroRama site, as well as being a very good friend of the arcade, having donated most of his collection of home console games and more. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. Gary Burton has also been known to write an article or two for the Pop Culture Retrorama site, in addition to sharing photographs of all of his hard work at the arcade to share on the Diary Facebook page. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicksagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting videos of the arcade on my Instagram account, which is simply vicksage underscore. I, of course, want to thank The Retroist. For over a decade, The Retroist has provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without The Retroist's support. And after a brief hiatus, The Retroist has started posting on his website once again. He's even working on new podcasts, so make sure to check it out. Why not have a token on me as you listen to a clip of the game I will talk about next week? This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Parker Brothers, Atari, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games and commercials are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe.
2: Imperial troops have entered space. Imperial troops have entered. End of line.